Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Terry Lynn McClintock was, as you know, transferred by Correctional Service Canada to a healing lodge, halfway house, um, and um, or a healing lodge. And then uh, because of public outcry and uh, Tory's dad making the country aware, Correctional Service of Canada backed off and put McClintock back into uh, prison. And through a lawyer, she was going to sue. Ah, can't have that. Can't be removed back to prison. You're violating my rights. I'm going to sue. Then there's Peter Whitmore, the violent child sexual abuser. We talked about him yesterday with Scott Newark. Uh, Whitmore is uh, advertising online uh, for friends. He wants female and male friends, and he's allowed to do that because, well, he has his rights. There's so much of that going on. We spoke uh, with Scott about um, others like, well, Scott, we didn't talk yesterday about Carla Homolka, uh, but she had her girls' night in when she was in prison. Uh, Paul Bernardo, you remember, there was, uh, there, was, there was all the conversation about 10 or 12 years ago about when I got a call uh, from a, a guard in Kingston saying Bernardo was getting time in the conjugal uh, relations trailer. Yeah, it was known as the Boom Boom Room. That's what it's known as. And we called Correctional Service Canada, and the answer was... We're not going to tell you because Mr. Bernardo has his rights. This is really, every time you think you've got something covered, every time you think you've got something uh, corrected, every time you think that something is going to make sense, that they've changed the rules, it slides back. So let's talk about McClintic. Uh, Scott Newark with us, former Crown Attorney in, uh, in Alberta, of course. We talked to Scott a great deal. Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association, also the Executive Director of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime in the past, and Adjunct Professor at Simon Fraser University currently. So uh, your thoughts on the McClintic situation? Well, I, the McClintic case, along with the, some of the other cases that uh, you cited, um, there may be different facts in them and they may raise different issues, but all of them, I think, um, are offering us an increased insight into exactly you know what the hell is going on at Correctional Services of Canada and what they're what they're doing. In McClintic's case, uh, I mean it's it's almost amusing that she decides that she's going to bring or her lawyers decide that they're going to bring a lawsuit against the government. And the reversal of the decision, as you say, came about because of the uh, Tory Stafford's father's diligence and exposing this. And it was um, really only after the minister, who Minister Goodale, who originally unbelievably described what this woman did, which was abduct, rape, and murder this little girl, um, described it as bad behavior. And when the outrage exploded, uh, he had Correctional Service of Canada review what had taken place in the case, and it turns out that they didn't, and they hadn't been following the rules about how this kind of a transfer would take place, and so they reversed the decision. But it was, again, an an example of how, in effect, CSC, Correctional Service of Canada, was doing what it wanted. And as is the case in so many other cases, unfortunately, we've been increasingly discussing. And that's why I think what is so important is the revelation this week from the frontline officers, the federal parole officers in institutions and out in the community 
about, in effect, what is the culture of uh, Correctional Service of Canada, because it is increasingly leading to these kinds of decisions which result in people being placed, in McClintock's case, you know, in this minimum security healing lodge where there were other kids, you know, other inmates who had their kids present. That's right. And uh, as well with people who are being released on parole, which shouldn't have been, the government is now misinforming. It's a polite word for lying about why that actually is. They're not using the tools available to them, such as electronic monitoring on high-risk offender cases. And this report from the, uh, the officers is, again, in detail, describes this culture that is coming, in my opinion, and in theirs, this culture that is coming back into Correctional Service of Canada, which is basically success is measured by getting them out of jail as fast as possible and don't return them. So that you, is very dangerous. So you, I'm glad you mentioned that, and you talk about a returning culture. So I'm looking at a story here that ran in the National Post on the 3rd of November, 1999. So that was, what, 20 years ago, right? Yeah. Carla Homolka, convicted in the killing of two teenage girls, claims in a lawsuit that the federal government has violated her constitutional rights by refusing to transfer her to a Montreal halfway house. Homolka argues in a lawsuit filed in the Federal Court of Canada that it is time to begin her reintegration into society. In particular, she'd like to become acquainted with Montreal, a city she plans to call home when she's eventually released. 20 years ago. Yeah, and as I say, uh, you know, the... What, uh, what goes around comes around, right? She her sentence. Uh, she's been back in the news a couple of times because she apparently was less than candid about who she was in some of the things she was arranging to That's do. Right. But it is the specifics of these comments, and it, it was interviews with frontline parole officers that I think gives us the greatest insight into what is going on and how this culture is returning. And it's that same culture is manifested by saying, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with the repeat pedophile, you know, getting on the uh, the, website, the web and, uh, you know, looking for people to contact them. What's the big deal? I know, it's, it's the, awful. It's the it's mindset awful. and the culture. Uh, Scott, do you, do you remember Clifford Olson, of course, and you, yeah. uh, the mass killer of Canadian children, and you appeared with... Um, with uh, I attended several of the parole hearings. Yeah, there. with Gary and Sharon Rosenfeld, yeah. whose son was murdered by, by Olson. Remember what the, the warden... Called Olson? The, the well, warden? Call, one warden at least used to call him Cliffy. Cliffy. Yeah. Cliffy. That was, yeah, that was, was what the warden was, called him, Cliffy. another example of what you're describing because, you know, he, uh, I will never forget the, his performance uh, at his uh, application to get early release. It was such a defining statement of how, like, stupid our system had become. Back in those days, he was entitled to ask for early release, Okay, we didn't allow consecutive sentences for multiple murders, so he was only serving the life, no parole, 25, but it didn't even mean 25 because back in those days he was allowed to apply for parole after only 15 years, and they had a pre-hearing conference in court, in effect, where he was supposed to attend, and I went out and I attended it in Vancouver, and Roy, he didn't, he wasn't there. His voice was broadcast through like a, you know, a sound box on the wall because the warden felt he was too dangerous to travel. I'm thinking to myself, here we got somebody who's, you know, deemed to be too dangerous to travel, but he's got a legal right to apply to get out of jail early? Mm -hmm. How stupid is that? Can I draw a straight line between that and Terry Lynn McClintock being in a halfway house, being in a halfway house 
with with other um, offenders' kids there. Yeah, I think the straight line, though, is the... Um, I'm not sure that it really applies as much in that case uh, because, you know, frankly, they did the right thing and uh, kept him in custody uh, until he uh, ultimately came out in a box, which was the right uh, conclusion, in my, case, my opinion. But it is the other cases that you've been describing, and, you know, you and I have done this for years, and it, it seemed to stop for a while, and it now... From my perspective, it feels to be coming back. Yes. Is this sense of, you know, like you're seeing these cases and you're going, what is going on? Seen here? this before. I'm sorry? It's a, it's a case of you and I saying, we've seen this before. Yeah. And that's why I think some of the uh, comments from these parole officers is so critically important. Uh, and I've uh, managed to get the report and uh, get some uh, some uh, extracts from it that I think we should uh, make sure that people are aware of. Everything I've learned about the justice industry, I've learned from Scott over the last 30 years, you've, you've helped so many, people don't talk about this, but you've helped so many people so very directly. And I talk to people, I talk to victims of crime and their families, and they all talk about you and what you've done for them. So once in a while, it's necessary and timely to say thank you. So, Mr. New York, thank you for everything you do. Well, much appreciated. I mean, I, as you know, uh, I was a prosecutor in Alberta, and the, the case that originally got me into this was about a career criminal who was serving a murder sentence who was released from prison as a reward uh, from the idiot who was the, uh, the warden um, because he you know, wanted to reward, reward him for what he thought was his cooperation. Actually, the guy just uh, uh, was an, in, an informant on all the other drug dealers in the prison, so he got a monopoly on the prison. And uh, he shouldn't. He, in fact, it was illegal, it was against the law the way they granted him a temporary absence to go to West Edmonton Mall. Ridiculous! And uh, gee, what a surprise! Uh, he escaped, killed uh, at least two people uh, before he was recaptured. And of course, what happened was Correctional Service of Canada covered everything up. And because of my contacts with the RCMP, and it's uh, you know the back, it's, it's complicated, involves other cases. I was put in touch with another inmate who had observed the whole thing, and I learned the truth. And, uh, and again, it was Gary and Sharon Rosenfeld who uh, got me to uh, connect with the, one of the victim's families, uh, uh, victim was Wanda Lee Woodward, uh, to try to get uh, you know, the truth. And I was very lucky. I had a minister who had my back and the senior crown uh, that had my back. And, and that's how I started digging into this stuff. But again, the point being not just simply to point fingers, but to learn from the mistakes so that we can change it so it doesn't happen again. Doesn't happen again, And yeah. I've had, a, you know, frankly, a whole career that uh, I've been involved in that in different uh, roles that I've played. But that's what you can probably hear it in my voice, the alarm that I'm feeling when I'm starting to see this return. I can. In the last couple of years, and I think it's probably fairly obvious to people, and look, governments are free to have their own priorities, but these criminal justice issues are obviously not a priority of this government. And so with some of the cases we've been discussing, the, the report that was released uh, this now week... Let's talk about that, uh, or you talk about it. You tell us what's going on. Is just, it, it's evidence of what the hell is going on and what needs to be fixed and how the public is at risk because of it. Okay, so 69%, I'm just looking at one line here, yeah. 69%, 69% of parole officers surveyed... Officers surveyed said they are not able to adequately protect the public given their current workloads. Think about that, okay? More pressure to transfer to minimum or support for early conditional release. 
case preparations being started at intake when not all information, police reports, or judges' reasons for sentence is being received. Many offenders are receiving shorter sentences and ending up in maximum security, and release work takes a back seat, and this is not a good practice when our main mandate is the protection of society. Pressure to move inmates to lower security, support for release, even when the risk is not manageable, pressure to give them more chances in the community when it is evident they need to be returned to custody to keep the public safe. Being forced to deal with these problems with offenders, inmates are potentially being released into the community without adequate coping strategies. And this one's really alarming. I feel the Correctional Service of Canada, and these are from the frontline officers, I feel the Correctional Service of Canada focuses too much on numbers rather than the stories behind those numbers. I find it disconcerting that institutional heads receive monetary rewards for positive offender outcomes when in reality those outcomes are just statistics, not the whole story. And the final one that I extracted was from a, a community uh, parole officer that I'm responsible for monitoring high-risk offenders 24-7. I can't sleep because I worry about risk that goes unmonitored. Oh. These are observations and insights insights from the frontline officers, and they need to be paid attention to. We also see from this report that uh, in a maximum security institution, one parole officer oh, yes. is, for every 30 offenders, in a medium security institution, it's 28, and in a minimum security institution, it's 25. It's the reverse of what it should be. But What's the logic of that? There is none. Now, this is, this is going back to, and some of the things in, in, that I read in some of these quotes, you'll remember as well, too. Back around uh, 1998, 1999, the then head of correctional services, Ole Ingstrup, who I really oh, I remember Mr. Ingstrup. Like, yeah. but he was brilliant. He put into place this uh, called the uh, Equality Plan, I believe, and he just arbitrarily and illegally decided that the system should have 50% in custody and 50% out. And he designed this strategy of all these sort of uh, administrative moves, some of which we're now seeing, you know, repeated again, um, so as to achieve those numbers. And it took a long time. Um, I was very much involved in uh, doing access to information requests, getting the information. The Ontario government, it was Jim Flaherty, who was the minister at the time, and Bob Runciman, who was the solicitor general. And we started uh, pr- at, you know, putting the information together. Peter McKay was the critic, and we managed to expose the thing and uh, shut it down. But I remember at the time, one of the uh, in people that I had who was a friend who was from inside CSC, and I want to stress this because there were so many good people working there that were outraged at what was going on, and they were very pleased to see someone like with my background that understood the system well enough. And I remember the time when they finally admitted that, yeah, okay, the program did exist, and they shut it down, and they ultimately got rid of this guy as the commissioner. And my one friend said to me, keep an eye on things, because just because they say it's shut down doesn't mean that it's going to be. And so when I'm seeing some of this stuff, this feels to me like we are back, headed towards that culture where, you know, the inmates are, quote, clients, they're all treated the same, and as well, too, success is measured by what was what people inside the system, the, the, the people at CSC themselves described it had become an acronym, GTO, or get them out. I remember speaking with a, uh, with a, with a warden, private conversation, so I won't uh, identify who he is. He may still be working in the system. But he said, uh, you know, this coming Thursday is release day, so I'm going to have to release a whole bunch of people who I know are going to commit more crimes, worse crimes, and they'll be back. 
and this, uh, the cycle will continue. Meanwhile, I have people in here who I know that if I release them, we'd never hear from them again. They just build a life and they'd never be heard from again. Those people I can't release because nobody gives a damn what my point of view is or what my experience tells me. So, And the more he speaks up, the more it harms his career. Well, exactly. That's why I'm not telling you who he is. Yeah. No. And, and listen, by the way, just on other related aspects of things, um, we gather the information of, you know, whether or not somebody who's committing a crime was on bail or probation or on parole, on statutory release, was a non-citizen subject to deportation. Okay, we gather all that information, but guess what? We don't report it. So Canadians don't get to know the truth about how their justice system is working. Mm-hmm. I'm very glad to see that uh, Jason Kenney, now Premier Jason Kenney, in their very detailed platform, Jason has committed to creating the Public's Right to Know the Truth Act, which will report that information on the uh, judicial district by judicial district basis so that citizens get to know the truth. Okay, listen, we're going we're gonna to have Having to... Having that information is critical to making this justice system work on our behalf again. Agreed. We, we, have, to, we have to end, but let's end on this. If it weren't for Rodney Stafford, we wouldn't know... A lot of what we know about Terry Terry Lynn McClintock. So here's the dad of the victim informing the country of what's wrong. That's so fundamentally wrong. Scott, always great talking to you. Thanks so much for the time. Scott Newark on The Roy Green Show. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.